1: Hello everyone and welcome to our latest edition in our Arbital Insights podcast series and I'm delighted today to have as our guest Tony Singler QC of Brick Court Chambers. Hello Tony.
0: Hi Gautam, thank you for having me on.
1: It's really good to have you and I'm delighted to be speaking with you. As always I will introduce you to our listeners and to those that don't know you to just tell them a little bit about you. So Tony is a QC at Brick Court Chambers, one of the preeminent chambers in London and globally. And uh, Tony has an incredibly broad practice, which I'll talk about in a minute. In terms of Tony's background, he was called to the bar in 2007 and a mere 14 years later, which I think may well be a record, but uh, I'm sure you'll correct me if I think, I think it may have been Jonathan Assumption, who maybe took it in 10 years. But anyway, we'll talk about that in due course. Tony made Silk in 2021, which on any estimation is an incredibly stellar rise and just is a reflection of Tony's incredible talent and ability. Tony has a very broad practice. He's recognised in several areas, many areas of commercial law. And when he was a junior, won a number of awards for being the top junior of the year in Few of those categories, and one of the reasons why it's great to be speaking to Tony is because Tony is one of the relatively few QCs of South Asian heritage at the English Bar, and this podcast is part of a special series to recognise South Asian Heritage Month. And it's with great delight, Tony, that I'm speaking with you today. And once again, I'm very grateful that you've taken time out from your schedule to do this
0: podcast with us. Thank you, Gautam. What an introduction. Very, very, very <laughs> flattering and embarrassing.
1: Well, but all thoroughly deserved, Tony. So let's wind this right back to the beginning.
0: Tell us a little bit about how you came to the law in the first place. Sure. So it's not a particularly interesting story. I'm the youngest of three children, and I have an older sister and an older brother, both of whom are lawyers themselves. So they read law at university, and they've gone on to have very successful careers in the law. And so really, by the time it came to deciding what to study at university, I looked at what they had done, it seemed reasonably interesting, there was nothing else that particularly grabbed me. So that was that I I studied law at university, and uh, did work experience and so on, and eventually qualified as a barrister.
1: And what led you to choose the bar? Was it your elder brother? or was it just the fact that you like the possibility of arguing cases in front of people?
0: Well, so so whilst it was always clear that I wanted to, to become a lawyer, uh, I did actually agonise for some time as to whether to become a solicitor or, or a barrister. And I mentioned that I did some work experience at university. Funnily enough, one of the firms that I did a vacation scheme at was Richard's Butler, as it was known then. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, quite. (laughs) Uh, In the summer of 2004, I spent time both in your London office and your Hong Kong office. And whilst I had an absolutely brilliant time, the work was very interesting, the people were incredibly friendly and and welcoming. The thing that actually swung it for me was your former senior partner, Tim Archer, who was then working Mm -hmm. as a consultant to the firm. He very kindly gave up his time to run an employment tribunal mock hearing. And so I conducted some advocacy during the course of that hearing. And I thought that the prospect of doing cross examination for a living was something that uh, was, was too, too good to turn down. So that really was, was what led me and, and confirmed my decision to come to the bar.
1: You know, that's wonderful. And you mentioning Richard Butler, but most importantly, Tim Archer, brings back great nostalgia and you know, great thoughts. You know, Tim unfortunately passed away a few years ago, but uh, he remains very much in our hearts. He was the senior partner of the firm when I joined from my previous firm in 1997. And he was an an incredible friend and mentor to so many of us. And I remember that employment law course that he used to teach as part of the vacation scheme. So I'm delighted that you uh, found that of such value in sort of delineating what you chose to do. So, I mean, I spoke about Tim there as a great mentor and friend to many of us, which leads very nicely to the next thing I wanted to ask you about, Tony, which is about in the course of your career so far, are there some people in particular who've been incredible mentors and sponsors to you and who've helped guide you in your education and career so far?
0: Absolutely. I mean, I've been very fortunate in, in this respect. So obviously I've had a lot of guidance from my brother and sister. Um, They have supported me over the years when I was at university, when choosing what to do as a profession, and even more recently than that. But in terms of members of the profession, I would name two individuals in particular. Charles Hollander QC is a well-known QC in London. And I had the good fortune to sit with him for a week as a mini pupil. And these things are often not very interesting placements and the barristers that you're sat with don't show very much interest in the mini pupils, that, that can happen. But Charles was uh, incredibly uh, welcoming. He was in the middle of a court of appeal hearing when I sat with him. He made sure that I was fully involved and understood what was going on. And the warmth that he showed to me as a second year law student was, was really quite amazing. And I remember he stayed in touch with me after I Went back to university, and so I think it's fair to say without him, I, I wouldn't have come to to Brick Court. It was it was really on the back of that that week I spent with him that I decided to to, to join Brick Court. And I suppose the other individual I would name is, is is Mark Howard QC. So these are both individuals at Brick Court Chambers, and Mark is very well known, I'm sure to to you, Gautam, and many others in the profession. He's one of the leading advocates at the bar and I've again I've been very fortunate to spend a huge amount of time with him over the years and to work with someone who's really at the top of his game has been a wonderful benefit of being at Brick Court and uh, I've learned a huge amount from from working with him over, over many years now.
1: Now those are wonderful mentors you've said I mean obviously family is always important in the extreme, as you mentioned, and also certain individuals. I mean, Charles Holder, of course, and Mark Howard, both extremely well-known. And of course, Charles, amongst other things, is the author of one of the preeminent textbooks in terms of disclosure. And Mark Howard, well, your joint head of chambers, strikes fear into the heart of people when they see him on the other side still. I mean, I must tell you, just very briefly, I was, many years ago, I did a case involving the law of guarantees, and we won at first instance before Miss Justice Cresswell after a two-week trial. And then the other side appealed and they got leave to appeal and uh, they changed their QC for the appeal and they brought in Mark Howard as their QC. You know, and this is back in 2005 when the Court of Appeal hearing took place. And I remember we all sort of thought, wow, Mark Howard's involved. We'd better make sure we're top of our game now. (laughs) Luckily, we were upheld in the Court of Appeal, but uh, Mark, as you'd imagine, was incredibly impressive. So, no, thank you for sharing those thoughts about your mentors. You know, now that you're obviously senior at uh, Brick Court and in the bar and you're gaining in your experience, how have you sought to utilise your experience when you are being mentored, to help your mentees?
0: That's a very interesting question. I mean, you're right that as one moves up the career ladder, one goes from being the junior person who is the beneficiary of the mentoring to suddenly looking after people who are younger than you and bringing on people at the junior end. So it, it's a very important part of what we do. I think part of taking silk is that you become a leader of the profession generally, N- not, not merely within one's own chambers, but you know, it's at the commercial bar more widely. And I, I guess I've tried to just look at people that I've learned from and worked out what was it about the way in which they dealt with me that allowed me to develop my skills. And I think part of that is actually giving people lots of responsibility. It's allowing people to develop by, by finding their own way to some extent. And I think often people consider that mentoring is a sort of controlling or a hands-on process. But I actually think often junior lawyers work better and respond better if you, if you give them uh, some freedom to, to run with things. So I suppose that would be the, the, the big thing that I try to take into mentoring myself.
1: Thank you. And Tony, I mentioned in the introduction that you've got a very broad commercial practice. You, know, you practice in several areas, banking and finance, professional negligence, competition law, to just name three, but also you're very active in international arbitration. And you know, I just wonder, how did you first get into the world of international arbitration? Was it literally like by accident or was it by sort of a design? So you know, just tell us a little bit
0: more about how you got into the world of arbitration. Sure. I mean, you have put your finger right when you say it was an accident. I mean, at Brick Court, uh, the barristers do a combination of, of litigation and arbitration. And I always knew that I wanted to do a mixture of the two. I, I didn't want to specialise in litigation uh, or arbitration. I wanted to try and have a, a foot in both camps. And so really, you know, as a very, very junior lawyer going back 15 years, when I first started, I was instructed in some arbitrations. And then really one thing leads to another, and, and one starts to develop a A specialism or a reputation in a particular field, and and now arbitration is a substantial part of, of my practice.
1: And you know, one of the things also that I always sort of talk to clients about, because clients inevitably, as the consumers of arbitration, will often rightly say that arbitration, whilst a very important dispute resolution mechanism, can be improved. Because there's no doubt that it's very widely used, but it it has got its issues. And none of us can hide away from those. These include things like cost, length of process, how long it takes to get an award and well, various other things which we can obviously chat about. But are there any particular aspects of arbitration? If you were to compare it starkly to the litigation process, are there any particular areas that you would think, Tony, are areas that could be particularly looked at you know, by institutions as well as practitioners as areas to really improve?
0: Well, I'm very glad you've asked me about this, and, and we could probably speak for, for many hours about how arbitration can <laughs> be improved. Um, uh, it's, it's something that I, I feel quite strongly about, being someone who, who practices quite a lot in the commercial court as, as well as in arbitration. So I often compare the, the, the two processes. Uh, one of the things when I started at the bar, everyone said arbitration has a reputation for being faster and for being cheaper, uh, as you've alluded to, Gautam. But in my recent experience, uh, neither one is true. Arbitration, in my experience, has become very expensive uh, and not as quick as it, as it used to be and as it should be. Trying to work out why that is, um, one of the particular bugbears that I have is the lack of summary determination in arbitration that one sees, particularly when one compares what goes on in, in the high court. Where judges are very proactive, will often strike out points of law or grant summary judgment on obvious points of, of fact or law. And I think that is a very, very important part of the process, which arbitration would benefit from if it was used more frequently. And the reason for that is I think not only does summary determination allow the tribunal to cut out arguments that have no merit. But often that leads to a huge saving of disclosure cost and evidence cost and then submissions at the hearing. So it, it cuts down both cost and time. And often, in my experience, summary determination of particular issues can often cause uh, cases to settle. If I could give one improvement, as it were, I think that would be it. Thanks, Tony.
1: And, and you know, one of the things that understandably arbitration is there is a bridge between common law jurisdictions and civil law jurisdictions. And you and I over the years, no doubt, have had a number of discussions with our colleagues about disclosure of documents in high court litigation. As you know, in arbitration, there is no system of automatic disclosure in that sense, but you do it by way of Redfern schedules, as it's you know, colloquially known. I mean, have you got any sort of any experiences, any thoughts as to is there any viable alternative to redfern schedules in, in international arbitration or are we stuck with them because of the fact that they do bridge in you know, the parties from common law jurisdictions and parties from civil law
0: jurisdictions well that's a good question i if i if summary determination was my first bugbear i think disclosure is the second uh, it, <laughs> it is a nightmare part of the process and i've i've not heard anyone uh, say a good thing about redfern schedules but but equally it is difficult as you say to come up with an alternative disclosure in the High Court used to work relatively well in the sense of we used to have a standard disclosure rule and you have to disclose all all relevant material, whether it helps you or is adverse. And now we, in fact, have moved away from standard disclosure in the High Court towards, as I'm sure you know, Gautam, the disclosure pilot. And in fact, that's moving closer to the Redfern schedule process. So it does have some benefits, but I think in in practice, it's often used to complicate matters too far. And, And arbitration, I've noticed a, a particular lack of rigour that, that, that comes with disclosure. So that would definitely be an area to improve, but quite what the solution is, I, I'm, I'm not sure I'm qualified to offer one up.
1: And I join you in that club because I can't offer one up myself, Tony. But, uh, <laughs> it's just one of those things that I think it's a constant discussion point amongst practitioners and clients, you know, because, because as you know, in some jurisdictions, in litigation in some jurisdictions, there is no concept of disclosure in civil law jurisdictions there is no concept of it at all. So it's always one of these things that it's a constant thing and you know certainly keeps us all on our toes. <laughs> so just moving to us to a sort of different topic, which I know is something of of huge importance to you and of course to me and many others of our background. But, you know, since this podcast is being recorded as part of our South Asian Heritage Month sessions, you and I have seen a lot of change since we were younger and i am significantly older than you tony so i can say in your case you're much younger than me but we have seen a lot of change and thankfully we have but you and i would i'm sure be the first to recognise there's still a lot to do and we have of course some great examples of huge achievement of course yourself at the bar and many others of that we could name from the bar, but also looking at the bench. We've got Lord Justice Singh, we've got Mr. Justice Saini, we've got Mr. Justice Chowdhury, but there's still some way to go. And I just wonder if you could share some of your thoughts about how you've seen these concepts of diversity, equality and inclusion evolve from when you were a young lawyer going through now to you being in
0: silk and your thoughts as to how we can you know, do better going forward. Well, you're absolutely right. Things have got better. Things have changed and things have got a lot better. I've been practicing for 16 years. And certainly in that time, the bar and the commercial bar has improved remarkably really in terms of the diversity. However, there is a lot more still to do. I mean, I think if one looks at gender diversity, there have been huge improvements and certainly at the commercial bar the gender diversity is, is is much, much better than it was. But in relation to ethnic minorities, I think there are still not enough men and women from ethnic minority backgrounds practicing at the commercial bar. That's, that's the area of the bar that I practice in and can speak directly to. So whilst things have improved, I do think looking ahead to the future, it's important that there are more role models, as you say, that there are a handful of members of the judiciary from ethnic minority backgrounds. But hopefully, in the years to come, there will be more and more people like yourself, Gautam, taking leading positions at major law firms and more people moving into silk and, and taking up senior positions in the profession. I, I would hope that through greater number of role models, one would see over the next five to 10, 15 years, the sort of improvement in ethnic minority diversity that we've seen with gender diversity over, over the past 10 or 15 years.
1: Thanks, Tony. I think you're absolutely right. I think, you know, the bar and The solicitor's profession has a great responsibility in that respect. And I know that a number of chambers, including Brick Court, have schemes in place to encourage a greater diversity of people. But I think it's great. Look, I mean, Brick Court has got, you know, a joint head of chambers, one of whom is Helen Davis, a QC, who I've had as an opponent and who, apart from being wonderful, is also a very tough opponent. So it's great to see those sorts of, as you say, there's a lot of gender diversity, which is great to see. And even at Brick Court Chambers, there are a number of other silks from an ethnic minority background. There's Jasbir, there's Harry, there's a few, and there's more coming through the system. I'm sure there'll be more to come. But I suppose one thing that I always wonder about, and this is something, I know you come from a family of lawyers, as you mentioned, Tony, if if you don't mind me saying, it's a very talented family. I mean, I'm the first lawyer in my family. Do you think there's a perception amongst you know, some people that law is still not well known enough amongst people of a South Asian background, because there tends to be, as you and I both know, a sort of preference, a bit of a, uh, how can I put it, sort of an expectation that there are certain professions that are perhaps more suitable for people to go into. Do you ever, have you ever had that sense yourself?
0: Well, Maybe I just spend far far too much time in the legal community because um, I mean I do I do understand the point you're making, but I, I really I really do feel that, that things are, are improving and you know people like yourself and, and many others are, are now getting out to speaking to people about the legal profession, speaking to young lawyers, speaking to students. So you're right that it may not be the natural place for, for many people from our backgrounds, but I, I think I think increasingly if one looks at the junior end of the profession, and many of the solicitors I I work with at, at, at the major city firms, you know, there is there is much better and greater diversity than there was ten or fifteen years ago. So things are heading in the right direction. But you're you're right that we we all have a responsibility to make sure that law is sold to students, as, as it were.
1: Absolutely. So, you know, Tony, just as we, I mean, we're sort of the last couple of areas to talk about before we close the podcast. You know, I wanted to ask you. Just thinking about your areas of practice, which, as I said, are very diverse and it's an incredibly broad cross section of areas. Are there any particular cases, and I, and I hope this isn't an unfair question, are there any particular cases that you've found particularly memorable so far in, in your career?
0: No, I don't think that's an unfair question. Uh, we we all live and breathe our, our cases. If I had to name one, it would be the Lloyd's HBOS litigation, mm-hmm. and that was a case really that I was instructed on in 2014, and it ran all the way uh, through to 2020. So a big, big part of my life and a major piece of litigation really concerning the global financial crisis and the implications of the crisis and, and the takeover uh, that Lloyd's did of, of HBOS. and so that was a case which had everything, really. It was a a huge piece of litigation. It went all the way to a very, very lengthy trial. And I suppose over the five or six years that that the case lasted, I I developed significantly as a lawyer. I started off as a relatively junior junior. And by the end, I was um, a relatively senior junior on, on, on the verge of taking silk. So that's a case which I will remember for many years to come. And the people I worked with were fantastic, very, very interesting clients. And so it was a huge, huge piece of litigation and a huge victory for, for Lloyd. So a case I'm very proud of.
1: Yeah, no, that's a really landmark litigation. Very well documented. And as you say, when these things run for a long time, they stay with you. And I think it's fair to say, isn't it, that case ended a year before you took Silk. So it was sort of, it's one of those cases where, as you said, the, the genesis of your development was obvious in that sense. So that's a nice example. So... Now, Tony, the way we traditionally end these podcasts is to sort of go into some more light-hearted conversation. From what I know, our listeners really enjoy some of the more sort of down to earth things about our guests. So there are three things I like to ask my podcast guests. The first one is, are there any bands or singers or areas of music you particularly
0: enjoy, Tony? I, w- I was worried you would ask me this sort of question. Uh, not <laughs> Nothing very exciting, I'm afraid. If I if I went back and looked at my Spotify, would probably have lots of Coldplay and The Killers or, or something very <laughs> embarrassing. So uh, let's let's move on.
1: Oh, that's not embarrassing at all. <laughs> I think mean, I think that's great. Actually, to be honest with you, it's great. And uh, you know, there's nothing embarrassing about that at all. No. So, and then, what about just moving into things like film? I, I mean, are there any films that you particularly have enjoyed, or you still enjoy sort of watching after a you know a while that you've not seen them?
0: Yeah, I mean that of course assumes that I have any free time to to watch any films these days. <laughs> Uh, if I had to name a film, I would say giving giving an honest answer rather than a, a highbrow answer. I would say my favourite film ever is probably Top Gun. And uh, oh yes, having, <laughs> uh, having just been to the cinema actually to, to watch Top Gun two, I've waited almost thirty years for the sequel. <laughs> so uh, I, feel, I feel like it's appropriate to name that. I think.
1: Well, you know something, Tony. I'm going to join you. I mean, I've I mean I haven't watched Top Gun Maverick yet. I've not yet had a chance to see it at all. But Top Gun, the original Top Gun, is one of those films that I remember vividly from my teenage years. And it was just one of those films that you just think, it's just, it's, it's just got everything, hasn't it? And I can still remember lots of the dialogue. I guess. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm just showing you that even I have a weakness for Top Gun. So
0: hey, That's um, very kind of you to help me out.
1: <laughs> It's great. No, no, no. I genuinely, I, <laughs> I still enjoy watching Top Gun. It's just one of those films that literally had everything in it. So, and then what about the last broad area, Tony, which is sort of like now, fingers crossed, we're, at, we're out of the worst of COVID and we're moving forward and travel is now a lot more possible for so many of us. Are there any particular places that you've traditionally enjoyed going to that you'd like to go back to, or a new place that you've not been to so far that you'd like to
0: travel to? Well, I am i haven't been abroad really for, for a long time because of COVID. I am absolutely desperate to, to get back to the, the French Alps and do some skiing. That's traditionally been my favourite form of holiday. Mm-hmm. I used to go twice a, a year, but I now haven't been for several years. So that's that's something I'm desperate, desperate to do. Uh, in fact, the last time I went was the week we all went into lockdown. I just returned. So uh, wow. I'm very keen to get back on the slopes and I probably won't remember how to ski, but uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll see. <laughs>
1: I no, I'm sure you will. It's, I'm, you know, I'm sure it's one of those things where, you know, a bit like cycling. You don't really forget. You just have to sort of do it again. Well, I certainly hope that you get back to skiing sometime very, very soon. And it's been an absolute delight to speak to you, Tony. Thank you for being part of this podcast. And thank you for being such a, uh, an inspirational person at the bar. It's Wonderful to see your success. It's wonderful to see you do really well and to lead the way for so many others coming through the bar. And I certainly wish you all continued success and look forward to seeing you in person sometime very, very soon, Tony. So thank you again. And I shall find a way that we can listen to some Coldplay or some Killers. Certainly, those are, are great choices. So don't be at all embarrassed about those choices. Thank you, Galton. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you very much.
2: Arbitral Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email arbitralinsights at reedsmith.com. To learn about the Reed Smith Arbitration Pricing Calculator, a first-of-its-kind mobile app that forecasts the costs of arbitration around the world, search Arbitration Pricing Calculator on reedsmith.com, or download for free through the Apple and Google Play app stores. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.